Lesson 1 for September 28th through to October 4, Making Sense of History, Zerubbabel and Ezra. The introduction to this quarter's lessons is titled, The Gospel According to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's written by the author, uh, Jerry Muscala, who has a uh, doctorate in theology and a doctorate in philosophy, and is a professor of Old Testament exegesis and theology, and dean of the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University. He joined the faculty in 1999. Prior coming to Andrews, Moscala served in various capacities as an ordained pastor, an administrator, a teacher and principal in the Czech Republic. He begins on the first page of the two-page introduction at the beginning of the lesson. Ezra and Nehemiah were exceptional, God-centered, word-oriented and spirit-filled leaders who deeply desired that God's people prosper and that his name be uplifted and proclaimed worldwide. Their lives modelled what God can do through dedicated, faithful servant leaders. Because of our sinful natures, cultivated habits and hereditary traits, we can experience lasting changes only through the study of God's transforming word and the Holy Spirit's assistance. Believers live not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, as it says in Zechariah 4 verse 6, and by embracing God's promises by faith, resulting in a vibrant spiritual life. This quarter's lessons illustrate that life is complicated. As soon as we try to do things, obstacles appear and opposition arises. Even friends may openly or secretly oppose us and perhaps become our enemies. Hurdles and resistance to good demonstrate that Satan is alive and that sin is real. Fighting Satan is humanly impossible because evil is stronger than we are. Only God can secure victory, revolutionize thinking and give us power to live balanced lives. Life's discouragements are opportunities for change. Disappointments may help us focus on essentials and accelerate our spiritual growth as we obtain victory in each crisis through God's empowerment. Neither of the books of Ezra nor Nehemiah ends with optimism. Sin is a serious matter, spreading easily and quickly. The biggest challenge does not come from outside – but from infidelity to God, with his own people not following his revealed will. To be faithful to the Lord and persevere in following his instruction is the strongest test for God's church. As Ezra correctly understood, the only power to change comes through diligently searching, comprehending and internalizing the scriptures. In order to fulfill the starting point of the prophecies of the 70 weeks and the 2,300 evenings and mornings, which both began in 457 BC, God graciously intervened and influenced King Artaxerxes I to allow Ezra, along with a group of Israelites, to return to Jerusalem to ensure the safety of their journey and even to supply needed physical and financial provisions for the temple services. And we'll read about that during the lessons in chapter 7. The key theological themes of these two books are God's providence, faithfulness and covenant. 
God fulfilled his promises, even though his people were narrow-minded, disoriented, distracted, and stubborn. Through his servants, he called them from their state of lethargy to revival and reformation. Ellen White writes in Prophets and Kings, page 677, The work of restoration and reform carried on by the returned exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah presents a picture of a work of spiritual restoration that is to be wrought in the closing days of this earth's history. The remnant of Israel were a feeble people, exposed to the ravages of their enemies, but through them God purposed to preserve in the earth a knowledge of himself and of his law. They were the guardians of the true worship, the keepers of the holy oracles. End of quote. Ezra and Nehemiah are historically linked and they cover a crucial transition in the life of God's people. These 23 chapters form one big story, but with subunits. They are complementary and cover similar theological issues. By carefully studying the pattern revealed in the composition of these two books, we can discern God's great historical actions and gracious leadership. Keep in mind that not everything presented in these books is written in chronological order, and that some parts are composed in a thematic manner. As we will see, the challenge for Ezra and Nehemiah was not to reconstruct the temple, it was finished and dedicated in 515 BC, more than 50 years before Ezra's arrival, but to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, its administration and the national autonomy, all eventually paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. As we study God's word this quarter, may the Lord bless us by inspiring us, touching our hearts, transforming our thinking, and enabling us daily to follow him faithfully and enthusiastically. Sabbath afternoon, September 28. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we open your word this week, we can guarantee from you that you'll be here to protect us and to guide us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that as we open your word, that we may see in the years of history that have passed and in the events that were involved with you and King Cyrus and Ezra and Nehemiah and all those others who were involved in this amazing story, that we may see your guidance and your blessing and know that that same guidance and blessing is for us as well. Help us to see you and your love and the love that is shown through the salvation provided through the death of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Ezra chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Let's read that again. Ezra 1 verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, 
and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In the writings of Jeremiah, God had promised that his people would return home after 70 years of Babylonian exile. King Cyrus was God's instrument to allow this return to happen. Anointed by God, as we read in Isaiah 45.1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armour of kings, and open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus issued a decree about 538 BC, freeing up God's people to return to their country and to rebuild the temple. It was God, not Cyrus, who spoke regarding Jerusalem in Isaiah 44 verse 28, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple let its foundations be laid. God was the guarantor that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and he stirred the heart of Cyrus to grant permission to build the temple. It is always encouraging, too, to see God's people respond positively to the Lord's actions. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, it says in Ezra 1 verse 5, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Here we see an example of people responding positively to God's mighty and gracious acts. Our best performance comes from a realization of who God is and what He has done, and from knowing how He lovingly intervenes on behalf of His people. Sunday, September 29, The First Return of the Exiles Question, read Jeremiah chapter 25, 11 and 12, 29 verse 10 and Daniel 9, 1 and 2. When did the first return of the exiles happen? What prophecy was the return fulfilling? First of all, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, And this whole land shall be in desolation and in astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will come to pass, when seventy years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And Jeremiah 29 verse 10, For thus says the Lord, after seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. And Daniel 9 verses 1 and 2, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. The Lord influenced Cyrus to allow the first return in fulfilment of Jeremiah's seventy-year prophecy. 
Jeremiah had written that the land of Judah would lie desolate for seventy years under Babylon. This actually happened from 606 or 605 BC to 537-536 BC. But then God would open the doors for the captives' return. As Daniel studied the writings of Jeremiah, he realised that the time had come for that promised return. In Daniel 9, Daniel is distraught because the 70 years were nearly up and no apparent change, and the new Persian Empire had now risen to power. He mourned and turned to God, pleading for mercy and the fulfilment of his promises. In the same chapter, Daniel 9, 24-27, God assured Daniel that he watches over everything and has a future planned with the Deliverer who will die for the people to atone for their sins, bring righteousness and fulfil the sacrificial system. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In effect, God was saying, Daniel, don't worry, since the true deliverer, Jesus, will surely come, I also will send a deliverer for you now. Shortly afterward, God moved Cyrus, the king of Persia, to give the command to release the captives. God is always true to his promises. See Daniel 10 for how God intervened in order to secure the prosperity of his people in their homeland. And Daniel 10 takes 20 verses. Let's read it, because this is important to the whole story. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, 
I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Ophaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone, saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigour was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground." Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless, and suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord! Because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you, and how I must return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come? But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these, except Michael, your prince. Ezra 1 records King Cyrus's proclamation that the nation of Israel was free to return to Jerusalem and to build the house of the Lord. The command was given sometime between the years 539 and 537 BC. Not only does Cyrus let them go, but he also makes sure that they return with gifts and offerings, including the original vessels from the temple, which had been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. This event reminds us of the Israelites leaving Egypt many years before, when God also moved the hearts of the people to present them with parting gifts. This first group to return to Judah was composed of about 50,000 people, which most 
likely included women and children from other territories. So, to finish the day, what other historical prophecies have been fulfilled exactly as promised in the Word, and how can we draw comfort from them that God knows the future and that we can trust His promises to us? Monday, September 30, Overview of Kings and Events The first group of returnees received the task of rebuilding the Temple of God. We will study about the opposition to the building of the Temple in a later lesson. Now, we will discuss the succession of Persian kings during the Temple's prolonged construction and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It is important to know the history behind the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah as it provides a deeper insight into their messages. Question. Read Ezra chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. Who were the different kings mentioned during whose reign the opposition to the building of the temple occurred? Ezra chapter 4 Verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Here is a list of the Persian kings in their chronological order, who were connected with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It begins with Cyrus, who established the Persian Empire and conquered Babylon in 539 BC. 1. Cyrus II, the Great, 559-530 to BC. Cambyses II, from 530 to 522 BC. Darius I from 522 to 486 BC. Xerxes I from 485 to 465 BC, also known from the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. Artaxerxes I from 465 to 424 BC. As we study these books, 
it's very important to know that the appearance of these kings is not mentioned in Ezra in chronological order. For example, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 to 24, is inserted before chapter 5, which continues the story of the opposition to the building of the temple. Consequently, the letters involving Xerxes I, that's Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes I, described in Ezra 4, occurred after the events recorded in chapters 5 and 6, dealing with Darius I. This sequence can seem perplexing to readers, and it may account for some of the confusion that people have had over the centuries regarding the books. As we go through the quarter, knowing the order of, of events will help us better understand the messages of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so to finish today, how often have you found things in the Bible that have perplexed you? How can you learn to trust God and His Word even when you come across things that don't seem to make sense? Why is it important for you to do so? So we'll finish with Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Tuesday, October 1, The Second Return of the Exiles In Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, we see that King Artaxerxes I allows Ezra to return to Jerusalem. The year is 457 BC, and to take with him anyone who would like to return. Not much is known about the relationship between the king and Ezra, or whether Ezra worked for the court. Ezra 8 lists the heads of the families of those who returned, starting with the priestly journeys, followed by the royal line, and ending with the general Jewish population. Twelve families are named specifically, giving the impression that this is a deliberate reminder of the twelve tribes of Israel. The passage lists about 1,500 men, which would approximate 5,000 to 6,000 total, counting women and children. This was a much smaller group than the first group that had returned with Zerubbabel and Joshua. Question. Read Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. What does it teach us about Ezra? Ezra chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now after these things, in the reign of Archaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariathoth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Azai, the son of Bukkai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. 
The king granted him all his request, according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nathim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra is a scribe with a priestly legacy. As a priest, he is a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first priest of the nation of Israel. Because of the accounts recorded in Ezra, as well as in Jewish tradition, Ezra's name stands very high, even today. Whether Ezra served as a scribe in the court of King Artaxerxes is not not known. Thus, this description of Ezra as a scribe either refers to his previous responsibilities or to his abilities, which he begins to use after his arrival in Judah. However, Ezra must have worked for Artaxerxes in some close capacity in order for the king to send him out as the leader of the expedition. In Ezra 7, verse 6 and verse 10, Ezra is labelled as a skilled and devoted scribe or teacher. The word skilled literally means rapid, connoting someone who is quick in comprehension and mental manoeuvring of information. Ezra had a quick mind. He was known for his knowledge and mental astuteness regarding the law of God. Moreover, the fact that the king chose Ezra to bring a group of Israelites to Judah is a testament to Ezra's courage and leadership abilities. So to finish today, notice Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, as we read in Ezra 7 verse 10. How would we apply that principle to our own lives now? Wednesday, October 2, Artaxerxes' Decree Question, read Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. What were the components of the king's decree? Why were these instructions important for the people of Israel? Ezra 7, beginning at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you, 
And whereas you, being sent by the king and his seven counsellors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king of his counsellors has freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem, now, therefore, Be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem, and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that... Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to one hundred talents of silver, one hundred cores of wheat, one hundred baths of wine, one hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethinim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death, or banishment, or confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counsellors, and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. The decree of Artaxerxes resembles Cyrus's first decree. The king counsels everyone who is willing, especially from the priestly lines, to make the journey to Jerusalem. Although, according to the Marashu historical documents, the majority of the Jews ultimately remained in Persia, as demonstrated in the story of Esther. There were those who had waited for the opportunity to start a new life in the homeland of their ancestors. The king directed most of his comments to the treasurers of the Trans-Euphrates Territory. The treasurers were to provide Ezra with whatever he needed to restore the city 
and to beautify the house of the Lord, as it says in Ezra 7.27. Ultimately, the king commissioned Ezra to ensure the proper observance of the law of God, as well as the law of the land, by setting up the judicial system. The order and organisation that this command would produce are important aspects of any society. Moreover, the king made it easier for Ezra and the Israelites to restore their homeland. Does the king's concern for the rebuilding of the city and the temple indicate that he had become a believer in Ezra's God? Artaxerxes calls God the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, in verse 15. The terminology the king uses about the God of Israel implies that he saw the Lord as just another local deity who needed to be appeased by gifts. He didn't want this local God to be angry with him and his sons, verse 23. Additionally, we should note that 457 BC also is the year of an Egyptian revolt against the Persian government. Thus, it is likely that the amenable actions of the king were designed to gain loyalty from the province of Judah. Unfortunately, despite the interaction the king had with both Ezra and Nehemiah, it didn't make him a believer in God. At least, nothing in the text indicates that he had become one, which means that the Lord can use even unconverted people to do his will on earth. And so to finish the day, even amid so much pain and suffering, how can we learn to trust in God's sovereignty over the world as seen here? Thursday, October 3, Importance of Education Question, read Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 and 10. What do these texts teach us about the importance of proper religious education? Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra's wholehearted devotion to God and his decision to study, practice and teach the word of God in these two verses we've just read prepared him for greater ministry in Israel. The biblical text literally states that he devoted himself to the studying, doing or making and teaching of the law of God. Ellen White provides an important insight in Prophets and Kings, page 608. Born of the sons of Aaron, Ezra had been given a priestly training, and in addition to this, he had acquired a familiarity with the writings of the magicians, the astrologers, and the wise men of the Medo-Persian realm. But he was not satisfied with his spiritual condition. He longed to be in full harmony with God. 
He longed for wisdom to carry out the divine will, and so he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, Ezra 7 verse 10. This led him to apply himself diligently to a study of the history of God's people as recorded in the writings of prophets and kings. He searched the historical and poetical books of the Bible to learn why the Lord had permitted Jerusalem to be destroyed and his people carried captive into a heathen land. And from page 609, the efforts of Ezra to revive an interest in the study of the scriptures were given permanency by his painstaking, lifelong work of preserving and multiplying the sacred scriptures. He gathered all the copies of the law that he could find, and had these transcribed and distributed. The pure word, thus multiplied and placed in the hands of many people, gave knowledge that was of inestimable value. End of quote. Notice that, though Ezra had learned of the ways of the pagans, he saw that they were not correct. Thus he sought to know the law from the source of truth, which was the word of God and the law of the Lord. He had to unlearn a great deal of what he learned at the worldly universities because, no doubt, much of what they taught was wrong. After all, how much good were the writings of the magicians and the astrologers going to do him? And so to finish today, in what ways, even today, might we need to unlearn a lot of what we've been taught from the world. Friday, October 4. Consider Ezra's diligent work, as written here by Ellen White in Prophets and Kings, page 609. Ezra became a mouthpiece for God, educating those about him in the principles that govern heaven. During the remaining years of his life, whether near the court of the king of Medo-Persia or at Jerusalem, his principal work was that of a teacher. As he communicated to others the truths he learned, his capacity for labour increased. He became a man of piety and zeal. He was the Lord's witness to the world of the power of the Bible truth to ennoble the daily life. End of quote. And from the same book, Prophets and Kings, page 675. In the work of reform to be carried forward today, there is need of men who, like Ezra and Nehemiah, will not palliate or excuse sin, nor shrink from vindicating the honour of God. Those upon whom rests the burden of this work will not hold their peace when wrong is done. Neither will they cover evil with a cloak of false charity. They will remember that God is no respecter of persons, and that severity to a few may prove mercy to many. They will remember also that in the one who rebukes evil, the Spirit of Christ should ever be revealed. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, yes, we have many wonderful promises from the Lord. At the same time, however, God does not force himself upon us. What choices might we be making in our own lives that could hinder the fulfilment of his promises to us? Two, 
Read the prayer of Daniel 9, verses 1 to 23. What are the principles you see there that could be applied in a personal way to your own experience? That is, what was Daniel doing? What was his attitude? And what was he asking for? What else do you see there that could be applicable to us today? So Daniel's prayer for the people, Daniel 9, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. 
Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplication, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer... The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me, and talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter, and understand." the vision. Question 3. In Thursday's study, we read what Ellen White wrote about how central the Word of God was to the ministry of Ezra, and about how diligently he worked to spread it among the people. What is the obvious and important lesson here for us today regarding the centrality that God's Word should have in our lives and church? Inside Story. Our mission story this week comes again from Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Panza Muella, the pastor of a Sunday church in the Democratic Republic of Congo, nearly died when his wife and son doused him with skin-burning acid on the day of his baptism into the Seventh-day Adventist church. But Banza, his face permanently disfigured, clung to life, and today is an Adventist lay pastor, preaching a powerful testimony that draws crowds to Jesus. I praise the Lord that I belong to the Seventh-day Adventist family and that the devil has been defeated, Banza said. The story began in October 2013, when Banza attended an evangelistic campaign in the southeastern city of Likasi. Keen to know more about Adventist doctrines, he enrolled in the pastoral training school at the local Philip Lemon University. On the day of his baptism, Banza returned home, happily singing a hymn about the power of Jesus. As he entered the house, his adult son lunged toward him and threw a pail of sulfuric acid on his face and body. Blinded and burning with pain, Banza cried out in agony and crumpled onto the floor. Banza's wife and son, enraged that he had left their church, had plotted the attack and hoped that he would die on the spot, said Robert S. Mahoon, president of the East Congo Union Mission. But, fortunately, a miracle happened, he said. The man did not die. 
Neighbours heard Banza's cry and rushed him to the hospital. Doctors weren't sure that he would make it. He lost an eye and most of the skin on his body. He spent weeks in intensive care and skin grafts and other reconstructive plastic surgery are continuing even now. The Adventist World Church has helped cover the expensive operations. Banza's wife and son disappeared after the attack and are on the run. While Banza remains in pain, he spends little time in the hospital bed. He actively shares his testimony in churches and at camp meetings. His favourite Bible passage is Isaiah 43, 1-3, which he reads as he shares his story. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. It is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Christian Services for the Blind. A video of this podcast also occurs on YouTube. Remember, God is always faithful.